0: Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul launched into his appeal to the Corinthians to give what they had said they would to the collection that Paul was taking up for the poor and persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. We discussed how these poor Christians in Jerusalem were in a tough spot because they were cut off from the Jewish support structures for the poor due to their faith in Christ. Sometime before Paul wrote 2nd Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth had pledged to contribute to this collection. But news has now gotten to Paul that they are not in the process of gathering it. In 2nd Corinthians 8, Paul discussed this, and then he gave them five things to consider to encourage them to give what they had pledged. Paul now continues on the same topic in 2nd Corinthians chapter 9. I'll read 2 Corinthians 9 verses 1 through 5 first and briefly comment on it, and then I'll read 2 Corinthians 9 verses 6 through 14, which will be our focus tonight. Uh, You may note some thematic overlap uh, this evening with our sermon from this morning. Uh, It just worked out that the two texts had some things in common, but I think that Paul comes at uh, what we're looking at this evening from a different angle and hope that uh, it can provide some different elements for us. And so with that said, let's hear from our text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning here with verse 1. Paul writes, "No, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, you would be humiliated. I'm sorry, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul here in these first five verses is concluding, uh, really, the discussion about the specifics of the collection that he had focused on in chapter 8. Here he lays out more specific as to who will be coming to visit the Corinthians and in what order and how they hope to take up the collection. He wants the Christians in Corinth to know what to expect. Uh, Again, we get a clear picture here that he's not trying to catch them off guard or surprise them in such a way that would pressure them to give on the spot. He says he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't want their giving to be an exaction. Instead, he wants them to give willingly. So he lays out the timetable so that they can consider it and decide what they will do when. And so having finished this specific instruction and given this timetable to the Corinthians, Paul now turns to one last discussion on giving in verses 6 through 14, which we'll focus on tonight. Let's hear that now, beginning with verse 6. Paul writes, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. This is God's word. A little over two years ago, author Zach Bissonnette wrote a book that's titled The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Mass Delusion and the Dark Side of Cute, which, which is kind of a great title. Bissonnette's book chronicles and analyzes the beanie baby craze that swept the country from around 1995 to 1999. I'm not sure how many of you remember that, but it was kind of a big deal. Now, I'll say up front, I have not read Bisonet's book, uh, though it does sound interesting. I have a few uh, more pressing things to read right now. But I did watch an interview that he did on MSNBC where he summarized the main points of what happened with the beanie baby craze in the 90s. For those of you who somehow missed it or are too young, beanie babies are this line of relatively small, maybe eight inch tall or so stuffed animals. Their bodies are filled with little plastic pellets, hence the beanie part of the name, and they were understuffed in order to make them more flexible. In 1993, Beanie Babies were launched by a man named Ty Warner, who launched the company out of his own condo. By 1995, they were a national craze. By 1997, Beanie Babies were 10% of all sales on eBay. In fact, some have claimed now that eBay would not have taken off and become what it became had it not been for Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies retailed for $5 each, but the average price they sold for on eBay was about $35, which means that people were buying them and then turning around and selling them at about a 600% markup on average. At the height of the craze, many Beanie Babies that were in short supply but high demand were selling for four dollars or $5,000. The most that Bissonnette says he heard of anyone ever paying uh, for one single beanie baby was $10,000. Bisonet explains uh, what was going on when this happened. He says, people were buying these as an investment. I mean, it's really, really hard to imagine that, he says, but that's what they were doing. So what kind of people would treat these small, relatively cheap stuffed animals like they were a serious financial investment? Well, in the interview, Beeson reflects on those he talked to in his research. He says, that was the thing that was so weird to me, was that I thought that when I interviewed all these collectors, that these people would be obviously insane. He goes on, I mean, I interviewed a soap opera star who lost his kids' six-figure college funds on these things. And I talked to him, I talked to the son, and they were two reasonable, intelligent, successful, high-functioning people. And oh, by the way, he lost $100,000 on Beanie Babies. And a lot of people did lose money. In late 1998, the company retired 10 types of Beanie Babies. This was a common thing that they would do. And previously, whenever they would stop making a certain line, whenever they would retire it, the prices would shoot up online once that had happened. But this time, in late 1998, these 10 newly retired Beanie Babies did not go up in value when the retirement was announced. At that point, B. Sennett summarizes, people sort of stepped back, they reevaluated the craze a bit, and after that, every month, the sales just cratered, he says. The bubble burst. For a little more perspective, in terms of sales, he points out that in late 1998, before this drop, some of the commissioned salespeople for the company, these were Uh, Salesmen, usually in their 20s, were making about $800,000 a year on commission selling these small stuffed animals. By late 1999 and early 2000, those same salesmen were making about $40,000 a year again. And values of Beanie Babies that people had collected also dropped hard. People lost most of what they had invested in Beanie Babies. When, one, when the interviewer asked uh, Bissonnette about how the collectors think about their behavior now, uh, Bissonnette puts it like this. He says, The collectors often had relatively little insight into their own behavior. I mean, they kept saying things like, Oh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was so exciting. We just remember hearing about how much they were worth and looking in the price guides, and we just kept accumulating and kept accumulating them. He concludes, I mean, a lot of them, I think, were sort of bewildered by it. So, why did the market for Beanie Babies crash? Why did this investment that so many had made crater and amount to nothing? When asked about it, Bissonnette could discuss a number of market factors that shaped the development and the eventual collapse of the bubble. In some ways, there were complex reasons for what happened. But on another level, this offers a simple explanation when he shrugs, looks at the interviewer and says, I mean, the reason Beanie Babies crashed on some level was that the whole thing was stupid, right? <laughs> the whole thing was stupid. People were paying thousands of dollars for little plush bears that cost about thirty five cents to make, and they were thinking of it as an investment. Of course, not everyone took it that far. But a lot of ordinary people spent a lot of money investing on these cheap stuffed animals. Why? Beesonet's subtitle seems to give us a hint. It was a mass delusion. A massive number of people were delusional about what these objects were really worth over the idea that they were a good financial investment. It's easy to look back at people who tried to treat Beanie Babies as an investment, and as long as you weren't one of them, I think it can be easy to look down on them. What was wrong with them, we might ask. What were they thinking? How dumb. But what I think is interesting to consider is that the Bible tells us again and again that we are prone to treat the gifts that God gives us in the same way. We, too, are prone to mass delusions about how we should invest what God has given us. The delusion that we buy into is that it is better to invest in the things of this world than in the things of the kingdom of God. And we make decisions about how to invest what God has given us based on this delusion. This is often true, of course, with our money. We're often tempted to spend large amounts of money on worldly things treating those things as if they are more of a solid investment than giving our money away for God's kingdom, which, if we're honest, usually seems to us like an overall loss for us. We thought about that some last week, of course, but our tendency to foolishly invest what God has given us isn't limited to just our money. For example, we also think about our time. According to sociologist Philip Zimbardo in the Key to D column, The average American male teen plays video games for about 676 hours each year. That comes to about 10% of their waking hours. Peter Lightheart points out that with that time, a young man could do many things. He could learn a new language. He could learn to play an instrument. He could learn a sport. He could learn to do all sorts of things. He could, in short, Lightheart writes, become the most interesting man in the world Zimbardo and column point out what would be possible if all the gamers devoted just 1% of their gaming hours to something with real-world impact they write considering Wikipedia represents roughly hundred million hours of human thought hypothetically 15.6 Wikipedia sized projects could be accomplished every year if each gamer invested that 1% into a crowdsourcing project. Of course, it's often easy in our culture to pick on young men, I think. But according to Nielsen, in the first quarter of 2017, the average baby boomer in the US spent an average of over six hours a day in front of the television. That would be about 30% of their waking hours. Gen Xers averaged about four hours, millennials about three. And all of those amounts are more than the average American teenage male spends on video games. And, of course, there are other things that we spend our time on as well. In 2016, Facebook reported that the average Facebook user spends 50, that's 5-0, minutes a day just on Facebook and Instagram. That's almost 5% of their waking hours. And that does not take other social media platforms into account. And, of course, we could find more and more and go on and on with statistics like this. Of course, hearing that, some of us would respond that we are more responsible than that. But even when we are being responsible in one sense, we can still fall into a similar trap. In his sermon on Titus 1, John Chrysostom turns to take aim, for example, at fathers on this issue. He points to certain fathers who, in his words, Occupied in the pursuit of wealth, he has made his children a secondary concern and not bestowed much care upon them so that he thought more of his wealth than of his children. It's Interesting to note that the importance of fathers investing in their children is not a new idea. Chrysostom saw both its importance and how much it was often neglected over a millennia ago. Of course, Chrysostom expects fathers to work in order to supply their children with what they need. But he also seems to recognize when that work has gone from providing for one's family to chasing after one's own selfish desires, even if they're desires that might look responsible to the outside world. Trivial entertainments, selfish pursuits, this is how we far too often at least spend our our time and money. Now, the point is not that these things, whether entertainment or greater income or something else, are inherently bad or that they should never be enjoyed. The point is rather that they're kind of like Beanie Babies. They can be good gifts to enjoy as good gifts, as nice things that are fun to enjoy from time to time. Spending $5 here or there on a Beanie Baby is not really a problem. But if you spend 30%, or 10%, or even 5% of your annual income on Beanie Babies, that's an investment, and a fairly delusional one. And in the same way, spending time here or there on entertainment is not a problem. But spending 10 to 30% of our waking hours playing video games or watching television, that, again, is an investment. And a lot like Beanie Babies, it's a delusional one. We're tempted in a variety of ways to invest God's gifts in worldly pursuits, which yield nothing in the long term or maybe even bring us a loss. And that was the same problem that the Corinthians seemed to be facing in our text. We covered this some last week, so I won't spend as much time on it tonight, but the Corinthians were hesitant to give to the Christians in need in Jerusalem from the surplus that they had from what they had over and above what they absolutely needed. Instead, spending that money for their own benefit and purpose seemed like a better investment to them. And so they're not passing God's gifts that were given to them onto others. That is the situation that Paul is dealing with. They're tempted to invest God's gifts to them in worldly pursuits. They're tempted, at the end of the day, to spend it on themselves. We saw last week that in chapter 8, Paul suggests several things for the Corinthians to consider. Here in chapter 9, he takes a different approach. Here he zooms out a bit and talks big picture about how we invest what God gives us. Paul is, of course, focusing on money here, and we should think about our money as we read this text. But what he has to say here is bigger than that. It applies to all of the gifts that God has given us. And Paul wants us to think about how we will invest them. And to do that well, he wants us to think about sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping is a picture that comes up again and again in this passage. Paul begins with it in verse 6. He writes, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He goes on in verse 7 and writes, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, without getting into all of the details of it, both of these verses seem to be alluding to Proverbs 22, verses 8 and 9. The first half of 2 Corinthians 9 6 seems to allude to the first half of Proverbs 22, 8. And the line, God loves a cheerful giver in verse 7, is actually a paraphrase of an alternative translation of Proverbs 22, 9. Now, that alternative translation was in the Septuagint, which Paul's, readers would have been familiar with. But since it wasn't in the original Hebrew, we don't have it in our translations today. But the point is that Paul was twice in two different ways, pointing his readers to Proverbs 22 and Paul's indicating that he wants his readers to turn there as well. And when we do that, we find more of the theme of sowing and reaping of the relationship between those two things. There in Proverbs 22, in verse 1, we read, A good name is to be chosen rather than riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. In verse 2, it says, The rich and the poor meet together, the Lord is the maker of them all. In verse 16, it goes on, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. In verses 22 and 23, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. And in the center of all of that are these verses 8 and 9 that Paul's alluding to, which read, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. So both overtly in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, and in this allusion to Proverbs 22, Paul is trying to focus us on the picture of sowing and reaping. In verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9, he more subtly uses this picture. He talks about an overflow in one thing leading to an overflow in another. An overflow in grace that should lead to an overflow in good works. Coming right after verses 6 and 7, I think it's fair to see these as playing off that sowing and reaping picture again. The Corinthians are given a picture of God's grace being sown, leading to a harvest of good works. Verse 9, you'll see a quotation there, is a quote from Psalm 112, particularly verse 9. And if we follow Paul's lead and look to Psalm 112, there we find not just a call to be generous... But again, this repeated affirmation that generosity leads to something, it produces a certain kind of harvest in the life of a believer. And then finally in verse 10 of our passage, Paul appears to be alluding to Isaiah 55:10, when he writes, "He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food." Paul is not only pointing out again that everything that the Corinthians have comes from God, but he's directing them once more to look back to the Old Testament text that he's alluding to, this time Isaiah 55. And when we turn to Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, we find once again that picture of sowing and reaping. First, Isaiah describes how sowing and scattering seed leads to a harvest of food. And then in the very next verse, he uses that same pattern to describe how God's word, scattered over his people, leads to a harvest in their lives sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, both with his words and also with his allusions, Paul is sort of hitting both us and the Corinthians over the head with that picture again and again. So what does he want us to take from it? Well, first, what does he want us to sow? In the immediate context with the Corinthians, it seems clear that he wants them to sow the money that they don't absolutely need. By giving it to the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. But again, Paul is talking big picture here and the pattern he draws out, while it certainly includes financial giving, goes beyond that as well. This pattern that Paul is sketching out for us applies to all forms of sacrificial service that we sow in the lives of others. That service can be in financial giving. It can be in time invested in the lives of others. It can be in works of service that we accomplish for others. What Paul is telling us is that we're called to take God's gifts to us and to sow them in the lives of other people. That's what he has in mind for the first half of the picture of sowing. Now, what about the reaping? What does Paul say that the harvest of such sowing will be? Well, he actually mentions four things in this passage that will come from it. We see the first in verse 10. He says that when we rightly sow what God has given to us, it will, quote, increase the harvest of your righteousness. What does Paul mean there? Paul is saying that we will grow in holiness. He's saying that we'll grow in sanctification. He's saying that God will note our righteous deeds and he will reward us in a harvest that will come at the resurrection. When we stand before him at his return in the life to come. It's the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, where he urges his followers to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. That treasure in heaven would seem to be this harvest of righteousness. It's our reward from God, and we're told by Jesus that it is more solid and secure than anything we might possess in this life. That is the first harvest that Paul mentions from sowing God's gifts in the lives of others. The second comes up in verses 11 and 12, where Paul says that sowing this gift for the Christians in Jerusalem will produce thanksgivings to God and result in the saints in Jerusalem overflowing in many thanks to God. Paul is saying that their giving will produce a harvest of glory for God. And it does this by showing God's power. Paul Barnett makes an interesting comment along these lines. He writes, It is one thing for God's power to provide amply what is needed to his servants, but perhaps a greater outpouring of divine power is needed to impel those servants to overflow in generosity to others, as witnessed by the resistance of the Corinthians to be open-handed to others. There are few evidences of God's power so impelling as the transformation from tight-fisted meanness to open-handed generosity. In other words, God is glorified more when he gives extra blessings to one group of his people and they then sacrificially share it with those who are in need. He's more glorified, Barnett is saying, by that than if he just gave everyone what they needed directly at the beginning. So when we sacrificially sow God's gifts to us in the lives of others, we increase the glory that's given to his name. Do we think about that much? Do we think about that as important? Do we live as if it's important? That is the second thing that Paul says we reap from sowing in this way. The third comes in verse 14. Paul says that if the Corinthians do this, then the Christians in Jerusalem will long for them and pray for them. Sacrificially sowing God's gifts to us in the lives of others will often lead those others to hold us closer in their hearts and to pray for us. The question that we're led to as Paul talks about this as a positive is do we think that prayer is valuable enough that the prospect of having more people pray more earnestly for us would motivate us to sow in their lives sacrificially? Paul seems to think that that should be motivation for us. And that is the third thing that he says we will harvest when we sow in this way. The last thing comes in verse 8. There Paul writes that God makes grace overflow in us and in that, he's able to turn that grace into an overflow of every good work. In other words, it's not just that their sowing in the lives of others is itself a good work, but that God will make it lead to more future good works in their lives. We have a growing cycle here. Like the farmer who sows and then reaps and then takes what he harvested and sows it in an even larger field, yielding a bigger harvest and repeating the process. God is telling us that our good works grow. They snowball. Sow some good works and harvest more, and sow those and harvest even more than that. That is a picture of how we grow spiritually. And so taking all of these four things together, what is Paul saying to us? Paul is telling us that we're called to take God's gifts to us and to sow them in the lives of others so that they might yield a harvest of righteousness and blessing in our own lives. And to get this, to think about that reality a little bit more deeper, deeper, I think it's actually important for us to step back and think about the nature of sowing itself. If we were to watch a farmer sow seed, and if you didn't know or believe how it worked, then if you think about it, if you try to step back and imagine it, sowing seed looks kind of insane, right? It looks like a waste. It looks like a loss. I mean, we can imagine observing a first century farmer like those the Corinthians might have been familiar with. He gets a sack of grain. He could grind that grain to make bread. He can invest that grain right then and there in his own belly. Maybe he does set some of it aside for that, and that's a good thing. But then he takes some of this grain, some of this food that can be eaten now, and he takes it out to a field and he throws it in the dirt. He scatters it all over the ground. And once he's done, he walks away from it and leaves it there. What a waste. What a loss. What a foolish thing to do, one would think. He could have eaten that. He could have enjoyed it himself. But instead, he just threw it in the dirt and left it. That's what it actually looks like. The only reason that we don't think that way is because we know, we believe, we Have faith, in a sense, that grain, that seed that is sown under normal conditions will grow. It will grow into a crop. It will grow into a crop that yields a harvest. It will grow into a crop that yields a harvest far beyond the amount that the farmer scattered on the ground in the first place. Farming is an act of faith. The farmer has to have faith that the seed will grow and yield a greater harvest. Without that faith, sowing looks like a loss, like a foolish waste of what we've been given. And giving is often the same for us. To us, giving our time or our effort or our money away, even if we think that it's for a good cause, even if we, think, even if we do it faithfully, far too often I think that we think of it in our lives as an overall loss. We think of it like throwing away what we have. Sure, maybe we believe that those who receive that gift of money or time or effort will be helped by what we've given them. But we think that once we give it away, it no longer has anything to do with us. It leaves our hands and it vanishes from us. Paul says that when we think that way, we're wrong. Paul says that when we give the gifts that God has given us to others, whatever they may be, then we are sowing. Paul says that those gifts are planted. We might not see much of them for a while. In fact, we might not see much of them in this life. But he tells us there will be a harvest. There will be a harvest of righteousness for us. There will be a harvest of thanks that's expressed in glory towards God, which we will be responsible for. And even in this life, there will be a harvest of prayer for us and of more opportunities for good works. That is what Paul tells us. And he tells us that each one of those four things, that righteousness, that glory for God, that prayer for us, that future good works, that each of these things is actually of more value for us than whatever worldly endeavor we may have planned to invest those gifts of God in for ourselves. The question we're faced with is, do we believe that? Do we believe that investing a sizable chunk of God's gifts to us in worldly things is sort of like investing a chunk of our income in beanie babies do we believe that investing a sizable chunk of our time or our effort or our money into the lives of other people will yield a harvest that's far more valuable not only for them but also for us and again as one of my seminary professors like to say don't hear what I'm not saying And I'll add while we're at it, don't hear what Paul is not saying. The message here is not that Christians are to live bare and bland and joyless lives, that they're to refuse to enjoy the gifts that God sends them. That's not the picture that Paul's painting for us. And it's not the picture that the Bible paints for us either. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that we should enjoy and delight in the food and the drink and the spouse and the family and the work that God gives us in this life. The question that Paul is raising for us is not whether it is good and proper for us to enjoy any gifts that God sends us, but how we view them in relation to the rewards that God offers for our sacrificial service. How do you tend to view things like climbing up to the next rung on the socioeconomic ladder or possessing the next new technological toy or being up to date on the latest new series on Netflix or keeping up your social media persona or any other host of things like these? Do you appreciate that they're a lot like Beanie Babies in the late 1990s? They're nice, maybe fun things to receive or to spend a little bit of your resources on, but a really foolish long-term investment, especially if we think of long-term in terms of eternity. That's what Paul wants us to see here. And, of course, that's not all that he wants us to see. He wants us especially to see the opposite. He wants us to consider how we view sacrificial giving and service. Do you see giving and service as a drain, as tossing your seed to the wind, or do you see it as sowing? Do you desire what Paul tells you you will reap from such sowing? Do you think about your sacrificial sowing in the lives of others and how that will lead to a harvest, a reward for you on the last day? Do you think about how sowing in the lives of others will lead to God being glorified by those others and will delight God's heart? Do you think about how it will lead to those you are serving maybe praying for you more and what those prayers might do in your life? Do you think about how you will grow spiritually and how this good work will lead to more good works? maybe even 30 or 60 or 100-fold in your life. That is what Paul wants us to think about in this text. It's easy to get caught up in the mass delusions of this world. It's easy to take up and focus on and obsess over and invest all that we have in the trinkets of this world, to treat them as if they were worth thousands when really they were put together for about 35 cents apiece. What are the ways that we do that? What are the ways that you do that? And what would it look like instead for us to invest God's gifts to us in the lives of other people so that they might bless them and then yield in our lives, both now and in eternity, a harvest of righteousness and blessing? What would it look like if we lived our lives and invested God's blessing to us as if we really believed that this text we're reading tonight were true? What would the church look like? How might it increase the glory given to God in this world, whether 30 or 60 or 100-fold? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for its challenge to us. We do pray that as we consider it, you would be at work in us and give us more and more of a vision for how you work in this world. That you would relieve from us the delusions that we so often fall into on how this world works and instead see it through the picture that Paul gives us here and be motivated to live for your glory and to make true and meaningful investments in this world and in the lives of others. Grant this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.